Welcome to the Education of a Financial Planner, where we look at the major concepts in financial planning through the lens of two quant investors who are learning the ropes of the planning process and how to help clients achieve their long-term goals. Learn along with us as experienced financial planner Matt Ziegler helps us understand the most important financial planning concepts that impact all of us and how we can apply them to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. In each episode, we will work through one major financial planning concept from the ground up and learn how we can apply it in the real world. From retirement to college savings to taxes to estate planning, we will cover a wide range of topics that apply to each of our everyday lives. We hope you will join us in our learning journey. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at the Lydia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. By the way, do you guys like my bad birdie shirt? Just I do. Wanted to get yeah, some feedback. Nice. Nice. Thank you. I'm going, I'm going with the same t-shirt I wear every week. So uh. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Jack's wardrobe is I, up. I've got, I've got the, the closet of random like blue shirts and sweaters that are the, oh crap, I'm on a video call. Nice. So um, yeah, today we wanted to, um, we're not going to talk about shirts. We're actually going to talk about risk. And um, this is something that is, you know, and it's an important, obviously, concept and thing to sort of discuss and get at and think about when you're building client portfolios, managing money, doing financial planning, doing all of the things that we do in our day job and we're not podcasting. And um, Matt, I know at, at some point in, uh, with, with Jack and I at Validia Capital, you know, the way that that conversation a lot of times starts with investors is around a risk questionnaire. So when we onboard a client, you know, they fill out, um, sort of this risk questionnaire template that sort of starts to get at the discuss the discussion around risk and how their portfolio should be allocated, how their investment strategy should be built, and what they can and can't accept in terms of risk. And that obviously plays into a whole bunch of things, their goals, how much of the portfolio we're managing, um, and many, many other things. But this is like a central, and it's very important to have these discussions, I think, with investors. And if we want to sort of sort of flush out a lot of things that have to do with risk and helping someone achieve their long-term goals. So, you know, Matt, maybe I'll kick it over to you. And like, when you think about sort of defining risk and building client portfolios, you know, how do you, how do you tackle it? And then let's kind of peel back some of those layers and talk about some of the things that we actually do day to day to help with risk management. So let's just say it first and foremost, most of those risk management surveys when you open an account are garbage, like they're trash. They don't actually tell you anything useful. They tell you something in like a canned, what do you think happens or how will you react? I remember an old one at my old firm we used to have, it was like, what would you do if your account was down 20%? Like, is this useful? Does anyone actually like think like this actually about like their life or their portfolio in a way that they have answers for this? If you have, you know, whatever you have, whether you have a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars and all of a sudden 20% of it goes away. Like, can you conceptualize that when it's not real? So most of those surveys I think are kind of trash. And I think for us and at some point in particular, when we do the financial planning stuff, that's such a better indication of risk than anything else. And so before we dive into the guts of this conversation, that CCBS framework that we use, which is just the calendar, the cash flow, the balance sheet. 
So, okay, we're talking about your assets. That means we're talking about the balance sheet. And we're talking about what you own likely on that balance sheet. And your risk is going to be largely determined by, do we need stuff on that balance sheet like to supplement cash flow on the calendar? If you're retired and you have to take an RMD or you need to fill a spending gap, like the risk you're taking needs to be based on what you need that money to do. The opposite side of that is if you're saving money, the risk you're taking, the stuff you're investing in on your balance sheet should be risks that you're comfortable taking and going, okay, I see the medium, short, medium, long-term merits of this thing because I don't need to convert it back into cash flow on my calendar uh, going forward. I don't think you can talk about risk without those three things. So, you know, the traditional, I think, measures of risk, people will kind of talk about like a client's ability to take risk and then their willingness. So like the ability going back to what you said, like if you need the money in the next three years, obviously the, the risk you can take is very different than if you need the money in the next in 30 years or something like that. Um, so that that tends to be, I think, more like financial type things. And then willingness is, you know, what are you going to do as a person? Like, you know, how are you going to handle what goes on? So, I mean, do you think those are two good buckets to put it in, like your ability to take risk and then your willingness? So I think those are great. That's a great starting reference set is the ability because ability is basically telling you like it won't break you. And then your willingness is taking you, telling you like, um, I'm willing to stare into the abyss. We've, and Sunpoint's done a lot of work with different like behavioral surveys and other ways to approach this risk assessment. And the, the thing that I always go back to is what I consider the coulda, shoulda, woulda approach, which is very technical. And so I know you guys appreciate my lists. I will explain this first to you in Nirvana terms. So <laughs> as the great philosopher, uh, Kurt Cobain once taught us. So coulda is basically the risks you could take. And I would lay that out in all apologies terms, which is, you know, what else could I be all apologies? It's like, I, I don't know, like I could take this. It's not going to kill me. All apologies. It's all fine in the end. On the other hand, that's a little bit more like lithium where it's the, I'm not scared, light my candles. I'm in a daze because I found God. Yeah. Like I took the lithium. It's all good. I uh, should take this because I can deal with whatever chaos the market is throwing at me now that I've taken my medicine. And then the last category, woulda, is the part that I think kind of gets left out. And I'd say this is like definitely unplugged about a girl because we can all agree that's the far superior version. But in about a girl where it's, you know, I'll take advantage while you hang me out to dry, but I can see you every night free. And that's the thing where it's like, yeah, I would do this, but there's something in the way. And so like that third layer that we get of another Nirvana song, something in the way, um, the third layer of like what's in the way behaviorally, I think is the other thing. Because somebody could say I could take this risk and I should take this risk, but still have a behavioral element that gets in the way that keeps them from taking that risk. Our job as advisors is to help them navigate not just their ability and willingness, but how they emotionally feel about putting that on the line. Well, first of all, uh, I'm impressed because I did, you just got the topic for this this morning. So the fact that you came up with the Nirvana songs um, on, on a very short notice is very impressive. I, I sort of challenged you and you accepted the challenge to come up with one of these things on very short notice. So I'm, I'm impressed. Full, full credit goes to the cultish creative uh, post from 526, where I actually made a, a blind melon reference. And I think my brain was all about the early 90s. One of the things I want to ask you about, because we deal with this a lot, is sort of we... we deal with this idea of Jim O'Shaughnessy's two points of failure. So the idea is there's two reasons investors would panic in, in markets. You know, one is because they lose a bunch of money. 
Two is because they're underperforming whatever they might consider a benchmark. So the S&P 500 or the 60-40 portfolio or whatever. And so we're, when we do things that are very active, which is most of what we do, we deal with that second point of failure a lot. You know, we deal with factor strategies that can underperform. We deal with like multi-asset models that look very different than stocks and bonds that can you know, be well ahead of those models, but also well behind. So that, to us, I think that, that almost is the bigger issue is like for, for us, we think, you know, clients have a harder time underperforming or, you know, going to the cocktail party and talking about what they're doing and having it be significantly worse than their like friends than they do losing money. And I'm just wondering, like from, from your end, like how you put those two points of failure in context. I think those are the complete encapsulation of the, the woulda from before. Like what's the behavioral thing that's either empowering you or getting in your way. Like fr frame that through, do the extreme example. So like the Warren Buffett approach, how would you talk about Warren Buffett's both outperformance and dramatic underperformance in the context of the Berkshire Hathaway career? I'm putting you on the spot with this. But. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you go back, if you look at Berkshire's Buffett's returns, you know, it was great early days, um, and it's been market-like performance. I'd say the last twenty years. Um, but I think what he's done a good job of doing is getting even with periods of underperformance, people sort of have his investors have stuck with him. He has very high-quality shareholders. So, um, but. Uh, there's there's certainly points in there where Berkshire has underperformed the market over periods of time. Yeah, I mean, that value decade, that de decade where value trailed recently, I think it underperformed pretty substantially. Um, so he, he's definitely just like everybody else. I mean, he's, he's had these very long periods where he's underperformed, definitely. It's got to be that behavioral mix. Like if, if you know sticking to your knitting is going to work over time, but you're going to suck in the short term, what did Wes call it? The value pain train for all those years? And that chart just kept getting worse and worse and worse looking. Like if you have something that you know you can stick to and you can stomach point of failure number two, then you just have to know you can stick to it. Uh, point of failure number one, like when stuff goes down, it sucks and it hurts all around, but then it goes back up to that point about balance sheet and converting it into cash flows. If I don't need to convert it into cash flows, I know I have multiple years to wait, then how strong is my fortitude around my strategy where I can shoulder shrug it off or go like, yeah, I really don't know. I might have to change. Something's broken here. I think what really helps on point of failure, number one, is the fact that everybody else is losing money too. You know, <laughs> I think people are much more willing to lose money when they see everyone else around them losing money. And it's much harder when I'm like trailing everybody, everybody else around me. I think that behaviorally, for some reason, point number one can be easier than point number two. And, and, we're, and we're the furthest thing away from any indexing-like strategy basically with the vast majority of the money that we manage for clients. But, you know, that does present or make a good argument why passive investing for some investors is good because you're just buying the market. You're not looking for outperformance. You're going to get the performance of the market, essentially, as long as you don't make bad timing decisions. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we're the first to say that, you know, for some investors in, you know, passive vehicles, just buying the S&P 500 is a great investment strategy. Um, if they want to aim for outperformance, then you got to be willing to accept the risk that sometimes the strategy actually doesn't, you know, outperform over periods of time. I'm wondering how, you know, going back to what you talked about before, when you talk to clients and you do your best to assess like what they're going to do, you know, what their risk tolerance is, what they're going to do if the market goes down, what they're going to do if they're underperform, how, how do you, how often is that end up being accurate in the real world? You know, that's something we struggle with. You know, we try to do, we came up with this document a few years ago 
And basically what we tried to do with clients when they came on board is say, here are all the horrible, awful things that are going to happen to you when you invest with us. So, you know, the stock, like every stock market decline that's ever occurred in history, how big they were, these 50% declines, we listed all of them. Here's the massive underperformance that value can have. You know, we tried to put it all out up front and I think it helped, but it's still, to your point before, it's still very hard to say to someone, oh, what are you going to do when you lose 40% of your money? And then have them actually lose 40% of their money. It's a very different world, you know, than, than talking about it up front. So I'm just wondering, like, how often is what clients tell you up front? How often is that very different when you see them in the real world? When you're in the midst of, like, getting bombed or seeing everything drop and, like, whether that's going through 2008 with people or going through COVID with people, like, it, it's, it sucks. It just sucks. And there's that Morgan Housel quote, the... Every past market crash looks like an opportunity, but every future market crash looks like a risk. And I think what you're doing when you're laying out the here's all the worst case scenarios to somebody in advance is you're, you're reminding them that in hindsight, everything was an opportunity to like double down or get more in or, or add more or whatever. And the future ones are the ones that look like something to be scared of. So... To the question, experiencing it is different than theorizing it. And the way that we try to get in front of in front of that is to both understand in what way are we dependent on any of these assets or strategies to be converted into something. Don't take race risk that you shouldn't take. But then when we're in the midst of those moments and the sky is actually falling and everything feels dreadful, like nothing's going to get better. Remember, those are the times that create the opportunity and then just make sure that there's enough of an ironclad plan that you can preserve the behavior, hold the hand of the client, get them through it. As the, the poet philosopher Method Man once asked, does Pinocchio have wooden balls, man? You got to know what you're made of. This is, this is probably like our, um, I, you know, Matt is doing a lot more planning, so holistic we're, you know, we're doing some planning, but we're doing more investment management. But for us, this is probably the most important thing that we can do as advisors is really try to get at for the investor, what is their true risk tolerance? If you, and, and, and really try to probe, and maybe we'll get into some of the ways that you can, you can figure, try to figure this out. But I mean, if you have this wrong going in, then I'm telling you right now, they're not going to be a long-term client. The investor's not going to be able to make it because when eventually the strategy underperforms or you lose more than the market, if you haven't defined it up front well, then you're probably not going to have a long-term relationship with the investor. Um, and so, yeah, so that's just, you know, I just wanted to add to that. Yeah. And I'm wondering that that was sort of my next question is, is how do we do that better? You know, like you made the point earlier, you know, just showing someone like a chart in 2008 and being like, oh, what are you going to do if you lose 50%? Like you're, you're not going to get an honest answer with that. And, you know, I've seen different ways of doing it. Like I worked with someone for a while who was kind of creating a, a product where they tried to put you like in a role playing thing where you went through those things. You kind of like went through your investing career, like in a simulation. And like you saw the news headlines that were going on and, and you they tried to put you in the place of that. But even still, you know, if your money's not on the line, it's very hard to do that. So I'm just wondering, like, do you have any tricks that you do in terms of like trying to pe make people understand what might happen and then how they might react to it when it does? So the, the closest to like a trick that I've actually come to this is back in the days when we had, you know, offices that people would come hang out in and stuff. I had one of those long-term 
I don't know, S&P or Dow. I don't even remember what the index was. I just know it was a U.S. stock market that went back to like the 50s or 60s. And on the chart, you had like the crash of 87 and the other stuff. And back to the Housel quote, it was a great way to illustrate the point that in the past, that looks like an opportunity in the front, it looks like a risk. And the thing that I would try to iterate with people, and I think this is, this gets to the heart of what you just said. So we talk about 87 and say you're somebody who's old enough to remember the 87 crash. Any of you guys have actual memory of the 87 crash? I, I do not. I do not. I, don't. I was six. Okay. <laughs> um, so the crash of 87, let's, let's put this in context. We just admitted we don't. How much stock investment did you have on the line in the crash of 87? Uh, I think the answer for all three of us is effectively zero. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then like in 2000, so in 2000, I'm coming out of high school. I don't really know what a stock is aside from hearing some stuff about day trading technology stocks from other people. Did you guys have any money on the line of your own in the tech bubble bursting? I mean, maybe a little bit, but we were, you know, the original Validia business was part of that bubble. So we had like direct experience of being an internet company and raising venture capital and then having to unwind it. So in some ways, like we were front and center to that bear market. Yeah. We, okay. we so, suffered a hundred percent loss of our stock. I guess. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Cause we, 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 we all had equity in the, that company at the time. Yeah. But I also could not have panicked and sold at any point during that because no one would take it. So uh, <laughs> it was a little bit of a different thing, I guess, behaviorally. It's kind of the That's private equity gotta... approach, right? Just don't tell, just don't market. Uh -huh. You got to panic an IPO. Didn't you get the memo? <laughs> yeah, we so, should have been a little bit earlier. Maybe we could have. Um, right. Just done a Sam Zell in 2007 or whatever it was when he top ticked to Blackstone. So, so this is, this is why that chart was there. This is the conversation I want to have with people. I want to find the first market experience they had with a massive drawdown and basically find out where they are back to the calendar cash flow balance sheet, that CCBS metaphor where we're going, okay, how old were you? What was your experience when this happened? So now you remember your private company getting zeroed in this stock decline. And how how strong is that memory for you? I mean, it was pretty formative, Matt, because it was our first kind of, we were, you know, early 20s. We were working like 80 hours a week, kind of all of us. We were all kind of single and not married. So it was our first real world experience. And we were effectively... We went from like, you know, um, like whatever it was, a few people to like 50. So basically we, we built a company and then had to dismantle it. That was our first real job. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for me because in, for some, in some way that's more formative than 2008. And like I, I had a portfolio in 2008, so I actually lost like a lot of money. And, you know, we were in like aggressive small cap value strategies. So like I lost more than the market did in 2008. But for some reason, like I remember back to 2000 more than I do to 2008. I don't know why that is. So these visceral strategies that you've already experienced, I think are the most valuable ones to get into. And everybody lived a slightly different calendar and everybody had money or different things on the line at different points in time. So now when we talk about risk, like if I was advising each of you on your personal financial plans and investment strategies, what I would want to talk through is those scenarios based on what you have now, which is your mix of public and possibly private investments in those scenarios. And now let's kind of like role play. We're scared about the risk of the crash in the future. So let's talk about those two prior crash experiences, which were very different for each of you for different reasons. 
um, related but different in each crash and where you were in time. And let's take the current setting, let's take your current portfolios, your current needs, your current savings goals, and let's overlay them to those visceral reactions and talk, talk through how would you like to react if that presented itself again? Yeah, you'd like to do that. nothing, obviously. You'd like to do nothing, but now let's think through all those visceral emotions that you attach to going through it and talk about how friggin' hard that actually is. Yeah, totally. I think that that's you're hitting the, the key point here. And you know, it it you can look back, but you gotta kind of then roll it forward to where you are in life and what you're looking to do and maybe how much money you have in other places and all the all the different stuff that you know you you would need to talk about, I think, to try to to try to get at that. I think the other thing for me too is like when I see a behavior of an investor that's not aligned with what they've told me. So, you know, the market's down, I don't know, let, let's use like last year, like, you know, the market was down, well, well, like 18%. And some of our strategies are better, some do worse, doesn't even matter. But if someone was like, said to me, you know, this money's long-term money, I don't need it in the next five years, I want it invested in stocks, and they were down maybe slightly more than the market, and they were completely panicking, like I would know, and you know, I've certainly experienced that, where I have certain clients that are checking their accounts daily, if not multiple times a day. And so, and then when things aren't, and I see this behavior out of them and I try to bring them back to, okay, like you hired us for this reason. Now we got to either stick to that and, and anchor to that, or, you know, maybe we need to change your investment allocation here. Maybe we are in too much risky stuff and you can't handle this type of tracking error and, and variability. So I sort of think like the behavior, and cause we're a little bit more investment management, we probably sort of hear and feel that more, Matt, than you might because you're doing like the, you know, more the planning side. On the institutional side of the house and what the family office is, definitely. That's mm -hmm. where it's, you're managing to an IPS and you know really quickly when you're benchmarking, how much do you suck compared to that benchmark? How much does everything suck on an absolute basis? And I, I feel that deeply too, because that's a big part of it. I'm just curious, when you look back at those 2008s with clients, I mean, do you focus a lot on what they actually did because that might be a better indication. Like, so if someone's telling you, oh, you know, I can handle the market declines, but then you ask them what they did in 2008 and they're like, well, I liquidated everything and bought gold bars or something. Then you have kind of an example of maybe, maybe that maybe the way they act in the real world might be different than what they're telling you. I mean, does that, is that helpful at all? It's absolutely helpful. And not to go deep into the method man philosophy of does Pinocchio have wooden balls, but like what you do is who you are. So when you're made of wood and you're telling lies and your nose is growing, like that's one thing. But when you turn into a real boy, well, you know, things are slightly different when you're humanized and care about Geppetto and everything else. So I think asking people what they did in those crises is very important and very telling. And then I think what's also important is, again, I can't stress this enough, like asking how people felt going through that. Because the other big difference is... And there's two pieces of this that I want to really drive home. If I'm 60, and so I was like, you know, late 40s or 50 when the financial crisis hit, which also means, by the way, that I was another, you know, 10, 10 years younger when the tech bubble burst, I was also at a very different phase in life for each of those. So you can meet a 60 year old who's going, I stayed the course through the tech bubble. It was scary, but I saw it come back. I stayed the course through the financial crisis. It was scary. I saw it come back. But now I'm retiring in a few years and I don't know if I can stay the course again. 
And with those people, you have the right behavior, but now you have a new set of circumstances because of age and place in life that are going to dictate how they're going to reinterpret some of those emotions. And so now it becomes, let's talk about the tech bubble or let's talk about the financial crisis. Let's talk about what worked. Let's talk about your cash flow needs and your other stuff and try to re-engineer the conversation of if we're scared about big drawdowns and everybody should be, or at least you should accept that the next drawdown is coming. And I think it's a Meb Faber idea. Like if you're saving and acquiring assets, the next drawdown is always going to be your biggest, right? Because like the bigger your portfolio, even the same size historic percentage decline is a bigger dollar value. And that's a mm-hmm. terrifying mm-hmm. thing. People often forget, but getting it into people's heads, this is how you felt. This is what the experience was. If we relive that again, let's talk through those emotions now and talk through the maneuvers we would want to make in real time to help with those emotions back to the, the Nirvana thing. Like what's the lithium we need to take to get through that drawdown and be like, I don't need this money for 10 years or this is my kid's inheritance in this Roth. I don't ever expect to touch it. So unless everything goes to hell, like survive this before, can survive this timeline, I think too. This is going to come completely out of left field, but this would be like amazing if this existed. And I, there was a Wall Street Journal article from like maybe a month ago that looked at like the scariest movies and measured the, the, the peak heart rate of the audience that was watching the movie and and i like kind of some of these scary movies so i was like oh i'm gonna watch this one i'm gonna watch this one and but it was cool that they actually put like some evidence and data behind like what the scariest ones were and then at what point in the movie the heart rate like peaked and i think it would be like it would be amazing if there was like something out there it's almost like imagine measuring like your stress level during bear markets for investors as a group and how you know, how stressed out people got during these market declines. Like if that, if that like tool existed, that would be like an incredibly useful, probably have a lot of privacy issues, but incredibly Justin's useful. got a pitch for Apple. It's a <laughs> yeah. tech startup and we know what happened last time. Oh, geez. Yeah. Idea. My track record is not good on that. <laughs> Justin's going to start sending an Apple watch to every client and basically like getting the tracking data and he's going to have it all streaming on his computer. Like seeing if everybody's panicking on the down days. But, but this stuff is great. And this is where I think it's, it's hugely personal too, which is why your experience and those things becomes so beneficial to a planner is when I have the conversation about your emotional experience, not just your financial experience through these things, we're going to help talk through how we want to behave when the next one shows up. And it's with the scary movies, which that's awesome. And I love the idea of like either a heart rate monitor or turning the knob up and down. But, you know, I might be hiding under the pillow and like crying when like the ring is on and you might be like jumping out of your seat with enjoyment or, you know, taking, taking my girlfriend to see like the John Wick movie, knowing she's not crazy about stuff like that. And she's like, do you really laugh at like this much violence? And I'm like, it's ballet with bullets. I love this. So your experience drives it. It would be awesome to see more things doing that. Michael Pompian, my colleague actually has some like risk stuff that tries to get more into this, including like your behavioral, your behavioral type and how you deal with different things and are likely to either want to chase or want to press or do something against your own behavior. Um, that's, that's really interesting too. It's an interesting aside before we go to the next thing, like Daniel Crosby actually had something about this on Twitter the other day about how risk tolerance is like domain specific to some degree. So like totally. Matt might love base jumping, 
but that doesn't mean Matt can tolerate like a lot of risk in his portfolio. And, and I'm kind of the opposite of that. Like I wouldn't do base jumping in a million years, but I can sit and watch my portfolio through pretty much anything. So it's interesting how like it's not necessarily in every aspect of life. If you have like a high risk tolerance, you do in investing. There's a lot of literature that actually bears that out. And I think the, one of my favorite examples that I use all the time are, are either of you casino or gambling people. No, I mean, I don't go, but I, I sort of like to understand the topic and I read stuff on it. Uh, understanding the topic. Great. You know, I once taught people to count cards and how to do Kelly bets in their head and mm, blackjack nice. on a rainy vacation. So like, I'm fascinated by that. I hate casinos. Uh -huh. I have a complete aversion, like get sick. Um, just even the thought of like hanging out at one. I hate when stuff is scheduled in one and I have to hang out in one for a little while. And it's, I'll do probabilistic bets and whatever else and markets and things like that all day. But keep me out of those places. I have a complete aversion. I'm just wondering, you know, as quants, we get to tr get tend to get trapped in these risk metrics a lot. Like we look at standard deviation a lot. We look at max drawdown. We'll look at tracking error. Like as, as a financial planner, do you look at those things? Do you care about those things? Or, or is it more like talking to people about how they feel about things and you're not really that worried about those kind of things? We definitely talk about those things and kind of obsess over them more so behind the scenes. So I think there's two pieces of this and then I'll reveal my like what's cracked to my brain that I can't say no to on these metrics. So I think when we're building portfolios, we look at all this stuff. We're looking at correlation matrices. We're figuring out how to stage stuff. We actually have a whole, we have a whole methodology inside of Sunpoint on what we call our risky assets and our risk mitigation assets with various layers of strategies underneath for thinking about these things. Oh, it's four layers, pretty complicated, pretty intricate, pretty math heavy but it helps inform the whole process. But with regular people, when it's you and I across the table and not everybody knows what standard deviation is or max drawdown, but when we're talking to either institutional clients or when we're translating it for regular humans, it's back to what's your experiences with prior volatility, prior drawdown, what's your tangible memories of those things and how do we think the portfolio reacts? Crack to me is regime analysis, probably because of everything I just told you. I love multi-factor regressions across different regimes to say, oh, if inflation did happen in these years, here's how all these things acted. And now let's think about standard deviation, drawdowns, and correlations in those regimes. Suck me down that rabbit hole every day of the week. Yeah, and that's so important, especially given what we're going through right now, because we, we might be in, in a regime shift or we saw a certain regime for like 40 years and we might be seeing a different one. So a lot of, a lot of times if you're going to run tests on those 40 years, you know, what happens in the future might not be what happened in those 40 years. So it is really important to look at like regimes and say, what worked in these regimes? And if we get this regime again, what might work? Because if you're going to build like a robust portfolio, that that's really important. The, the other thing that's sort of important to think about here is, um, is like the level of return given the level of risk you're taking. And that is through the something that's called the sharp ratio, which is you know, a measure of risk adjusted return. So you might have two different investment strategies, both are compounding at let's say 12% annually, but the one that has the 20% volatility is not as good as the one with the 15% per year volatility. So that's just more of a, for people that wanna dig into, you know, a way to measure risk adjusted return, something like the Sharpe ratio is one way that you you can do that. And it's a very valuable number when you're looking at a portfolio, mutual fund investment strategy or something else. I just had a couple more. Um, I want to ask you that there's a bunch of services out there that are available for people like, you know, for advisors like you that 
try to do this for you. They try to like break it down to like a risk score, you know, take, take in a bunch of information about a person and boil that down to kind of a risk score. I'm just wondering if you use any of that and what your thoughts are on that in general. So I don't think you should have, I mean, risk scores are fine, but I think the Peter Mladina interview that we did, uh, wherever, wherever that can be found at this point or when it will come out. This idea of this intertemporal capital asset pricing model that risk exists and is understood in a different way across across space and time is super important. In a singular risk score, I don't think without the nuance of what does that mean across time is kind of worthless. So capital asset pricing model, great. But if you're actually saving for stuff in the future, you need the temporal element or else what does it matter? So inside of that, whether it's risk allies or if you're using Aladdin from BlackRock or, or whatever, take your pick. There's a lot of them. I think you just have to understand, like, is it, uh, is it regression based on factors and you're dissecting what's moving what, why, and when? Uh, is it holdings based where you're actually applying stuff to the individual holdings level? How is that feeding in? What are your intertemporal um, assumptions that you're putting into this and your capital asset pricing model that's driving this and the relationships between those things? That's great for professionals to do. I don't know how many individuals outside of family office or institutional level are doing that type of work, but you want to understand that. Can you really boil it down to a number? If I tell you your risk is level six and the market goes off a cliff and we have a year where both stocks and bonds, the 60-40 underperforms worse than any time in history, right? Like, did knowing you were a six matter? Yeah, yeah no. Yeah, not at all. You know, and then the other thing with that, too, is, you know, going back to O'Shaughnessy's multiple points of failure, people can have very different scores on those points of failure. Somebody can and be they a change 10. over time. Right. They're not yeah, consistent. So it, it is very, it's very difficult. It, it's definitely a moving target. Um, well, I, I almost feel like, too, like, and I might be, this might be, like, in the middle here. So, like, I think some tools like that are being used as, like, a sales like, let me look at your portfolio. Oh, you, you're you like, think you think, yeah, I, I know, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, you know, your risk score is like based on your current portfolio is actually this, but it should be this. Therefore client come to me because I'm going to do a better job of managing your risk, you know? So yeah. 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 The real life horror movie versus the on-screen horror movie. Right. I just had one more as we wrap up here. I want to ask, you know, a lot of people who listen to this will work with someone like you or like us, but a lot of people won't. And I'm just wondering if you have any advice for like the average investor who's trying to assess their own risk tolerance. Like, and we've talked about it a lot of it already, but if you have any like high level advice in terms of how you can be honest with yourself about your own risk tolerance as you build your personal portfolio. I'm assuming the answer we're looking for here is ayahuasca. I, it can be, no, if you want it to be. I, um, <laughs> no, <laughs> back, back to things Matt has an aversion to. No casinos, no drugs. Mm -hmm. Freaks me out. Um, so... The, as I'm, as I'm drinking coffee, coffee and alcohol, totally fine. Everything else, I'm sheer panic attack over thanks to my eighties dare upbringing. Um, what I would say is honestly, even if you're a regular investor and you're not working with somebody that CCBS exercise of just writing down your calendar, what's, what's ahead of you that know what's coming, understand your cash flow. That's the balance of what's coming in, what's coming out. Do I have a surplus or a deficit? And then how is my balance sheet impacted? Meaning if I'm saving, if I've got more money coming in than is going out and I don't work at a tech startup in 1999 named Validia and none of that stuff is going on, then, or pets.com, no, this is what I'm doing with my extra cash flow or this is the hole I need to fill. 
Once you understand the calendar and the cash flow, then you're ready to start making decisions about your balance sheet. And then if you're just doing simple, you're doing Vanguard uh, beta stuff where it's just give me a stock market portfolio, give me a bond portfolio or cash to help offset any shortflows or emergencies in my balance sheet that I might need to fill in my cash flow. Great. You can start dialing it in to say, what do I need and under what period do I need it? And everybody can do that. It's that simple. So few people I see actually take the time to write this stuff down and they're quick to want to throw it into a financial model or some financial calculator. Do I have enough to retire? Well, that depends. It depends on all these factors. Stopping to understand calendar and cash flow before you start to ask about the risk on your balance sheet, that gets most people 80% of the way there. Anybody can do it with a calculator and you don't even need an Excel sheet. Give me the back of a napkin, a pen, and a calculator, and we can figure out 80% of those basics. Yeah, and in terms of your like ability to stay the course, you know, one of the things I've always I like to say to investors is like, if you think you're a nine in what you can take, you know, you might want to build your portfolio to a seven. You know, with the type of stuff we do, the very active factor stuff, you know, you're not going to give up that much return being a little less concentrated, but you're going to give up tons of return if you panic. And so like being conservative about what you can actually take, you know, I, I think is helpful for people, even if they're not using somebody to do it. But like being realistic and being conservative, I think can be helpful as well. And, and sort of related to that, I think for individual investors, you know, actually looking back at your past actions, which we've kind of already talked about this, but like, did the decisions you made, did they hurt or did they help? So anyone that's been investing for the last 10 years and done any degree of market timing, just the question is, is did the decision you make during sort of a, 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 um, a bad market environment, you know, did you make a good decision or a bad decision? And if you've made all bad decisions and you've hurt your returns, well, then, you know, you probably were, your portfolio was probably too risky and it probably is too risky now. So I, I do think that's one thing that's always kind of like, um, and I'm not even saying it's it's difficult for people to do, but it's like the, the investors that have been investing for themselves for a long time, like what is their actual performance? And most people can't even really answer that. It's kind of hard to get. It's not easy to calculate always. It can be in a, a lot of different accounts. But- and not always relevant because you can't go back and undo it. Like it. No, exactly. It's but it's more like your the deci- the decisions that you made. You know, did you make them because you panicked or you got scared or what for whatever reason? You know, and so. But you're right. That that's kind of water under the bridge. It's like, but then thinking about okay, well, that's what the decision I did make. So maybe I need to be invested differently, possibly. That's how you're wired. It's what you are. I think that's that's perfect. I put the highlighter, bold, bold face print on that statement. Like look back at how you behaved in the past and understand that was your default setting to do something. And would you repeat it again? Or do you need to be tied to the masts so that you don't go out and chase those sirens again? So uh, we talked about a lot of things uh, to do with risk, um, people's willingness to accept risk, their ability to accept risk, um, how they can figure out how much risk they can withstand, um, looking at different periods of time when you were investing and thinking about how you reacted. Um, and then, you know, all these different things that are, I think, very important for long-term investing success um, and risk and understanding your risk tolerance is uh, an important element to that. It's valuable. Um, we will see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at @cultishcreative. 
If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.